Hello and welcome to our podcast, Which Way for the Church. This one is a really good one. We've got the Reverend Joe Tricky, curate of Holy Cross Fenham, and also uh, the intern officer for Newcastle Diocese, speaking to us about Jesus and which way for the church. There's a few extra hard questions which um, she asked to be put in. So enjoy and be blessed. So, um, Joe, could you just share a little bit about who you are and uh, where you come from? Um, I am Joe. Uh, I'm Joe Tricky, but um, I'm only tricky by marriage. I wasn't tricky by birth. Um, I, uh, I was born to um, two lovely faithful Christians. My parents um, both kind of uh, grew up in faith. My dad came to faith as a teenager um, through camps that he went on in the summer um, and my mum came to faith through her, um, her parents really in the church that they took her to growing up. So I was very privileged to grow up in a Christian family. Um, my parents are English um, but when I was three years old we moved to New Zealand um, and so we were suddenly in this context where there was kind of no family around um, and we had this amazing couple, Ian and Nancy, um, who would regularly have us over for lunch. They were kind of surrogate grandparents, um, amazing. Nancy was one of those annoying people who were incredibly gifted and you could just like tell her a song a bit like Christopher and she could just play it. And I, I have no musical gifting at all. You'll know that if you ever stand next to me when I sing. Um, and so I just thought she was the most amazing lady in the world. Um, Ian had this magic trick um, that he would put his hand in his pocket and draw out his handkerchief and he would say, feel it. And it would always feel like a screw. Um, and I was like, how does he turn his thumb into a screw? This is the most extraordinary thing. Um, and it took me years to realise they had one handkerchief for blowing his nose on and one handkerchief for magic tricks with a screw sewn into the lining. Um, that's a good trick if you want to impress children. Um, and he was, you know, these were amazing, faithful people in our lives. And I remember Nancy saying to me one day, like, Joe, have you given your life to Jesus? And I was like, that's such a weird question. Um, because it, it, to me, it was a really weird question. I'd grown up in a church and I, I was like, well, I'm a Christian by birth. And she explained to me that um, if I wanted to follow Jesus, I should make a point of telling Jesus that I loved him and that I wanted to follow him. So she told me a little bit about how to do this. You go home, you kneel down by your bed, you pray and you say, Lord Jesus, I want to live my life for you. I know I've made lots of mistakes. Thank you that you take that away and that I can be free to live life in you. So I went home, um, shared a very small room with my sister and we had bunk beds and I was the top bunk. Um, so there was the kind of moment of, I just want to be really clear with God that this is me and not my sister, because we look quite alike. Um, so I knelt on my bunk, I knelt on the ladder, and I wasn't sure if the ground was important, so I also knelt on the ground just to be like triply sure that, um, that God knew that I was interested in following Jesus. Um, and so my Christian journey kind of has evolved since then. You'd hope that it'd become a little bit more developed um, than that. And I've had the opportunity to follow Jesus um, in lots of different contexts. And I think my faith has often, um, certainly as a child and a teenager, was shaped by those moments of um, you're in a new context, in a new city, in a new place. And my parents moved a fair bit. Do I still want to be known as a Christian here when that might be uncomfortable? Um, and so there were lots of moments for me of deciding to be in. I, wasn't, I didn't really have those massive moments of rebellion when I decided to be out because I think I was so regularly faced with those moments of going, do you want to be in, that um, I had to take that every few years. So that, in a sense, that was my journey, that one of continually deciding to follow Jesus after the slightly weird bunk bed moment, um, when I, in a way it all sort of became a bit more real. Well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll carry on on that there. Um, now, you're obviously, you've got two children, you're married to Josh, so um, how did you meet? Um, Josh and I had a very unusual meeting. Um, I was just about to turn 18, I was finishing school and I um, had gone on a training weekend um, in London for a camp that I was going to be involved in over the summer called New Wine, which is um, where I met Dan's family. And a friend of mine said, oh, I live um, in, 
he liked to call it South London. What he really meant was Surrey. Um, but he thought it sounded a bit more trendy to say, I live in South London. Like, the Surrey Hills is not, not South London. Um, and anyway, I said, you know, I, I need somewhere to stay after this training weekend. He's like, come back to mine, we'll go to my youth group in the evening after church. I went to this youth group and um, just met this amazing group of teenagers. And one of them came up to me and said, oh, you know, who are you? They were being really friendly, hosting, hi, I'm, hi, I'm Josh. Da, da, da. Um, and he ha we had a chat and he said, um, do you know what you're doing next year? And I said, in all my arrogance, no, I don't know what I'm going to do when I leave school. Um, and it's like nine o'clock, so J God's clearly not going to tell me today, is he? Um, <laughs> within five minutes, um, the youth worker had walked over from the other side of the room hadn't heard this conversation at all and had asked me whether I'd be interested in um, doing an internship, like an apprenticeship at their church. So that was my first encounter with Josh. Um, in those five minutes, I met my husband, doubted God, uh, and got my call to ministry. Um, and most of that I see with retrospect. It took Josh um, over 12 years to get up the courage to ask me out. Um, <laughs> and we spent a lot of time in the intervening years growing up a bit. Um, uh, and I discovered that he was, in fact, um, the son of the guy that I went to work for. So I did my internship working for my father-in-law. Um, and he's also called Joe Tricky, so that creates a lot of confusion when I turn up at events and people look at me and say, are you sure you're Joe Tricky? And I have to explain that I'm not a 60-something-year-old man with a beard, um, but I am definitely who I said I would be. Um, so that's a bit about how I met Josh. Most of our relationship has moments of being as ridiculous as, and wonderful as that first one. If you ask him, he'll tell you a really romantic story. If you ask me, I'll tell you the silly events. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. And the great thing is, we, we know where Josh lives, and so uh, we'll have to ask him a little bit about that and, uh, um, and so forth. Um, so obviously, you, know, you shared a little bit about your, your faith, and you shared a little bit about Josh, and, and you obviously got two children. You've got uh, um, Jemima, chicken pox maybe, um, and, um, and Falcon, brilliant. And so um, in all of this, um, you kind of, you know, got a little bit too enthusiastic? Is that why you become a vicar, or uh, no? Um, no, I've been trying to get out of being a vicar for a very long time, um, and I'm succeeding still at the moment by not being actually a vicar. Um, I think I sensed a call to something very early on, and I didn't know what that was. I um, came out of a church tradition, well, I, you know, my background is in a church tradition where women were not, never leaders. Um, and so I had this sense that God was calling me to something um, that he was going to use me in some way, but I had no idea what that was. Um, and I was really clear with God in my conversations um, that I wasn't going to go forward in ministry unless I was confident that it was in line with his word. Um, and that I had uh, the blessing of my family to do that because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to cause division in my family. Um, so I was really clear with God, this is what it would take for me to offer myself um, for ordination. I spent a lot of time, I went to theological college twice because I clearly needed the input. Um, and then my first, uh, first foray into theological study, I um, spent a lot of time wrestling with what does it look like to be a woman in the church? How do I journey with God in this? And particularly, how do I reconcile those passages of scripture that seem to be saying that women shouldn't preach and teach? And how do, I, how do I work through that and process that and what do I do with those? Um, because I was really clear that if God was calling me that that would make sense. But if it wasn't God's call for me to do that, then that would be fine. Um, and so I was, yeah, spent a long time wrestling with that. And then kind of when that was done, um, I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll start putting myself forward for ordination. And that, that was about 14 years ago. So it's taken me a while to get here. Um, but it has been a fascinating journey. And I think um, one of the things that I've learned that I, I say to people that I'm encouraging to explore what God is calling to is it, it's not a race. You're not rushing to get to be the vicar. Actually, I've been so blessed by the journey and I feel like I've been able to serve the people that I've met and I've been able to serve God in ways that I wouldn't have been able to do if I was the vicar. And actually, it's been a real privilege. I'm, I think I'm about five years into being a curate, which is like really long, and I'm still not over the finish line. Um, but actually, that's not, 
it's not about that. It's about getting the opportunity to love God's people um, and to serve the communities in which I'm placed so that I can hold up the light of Jesus to those who don't yet know him and to those who know him. And, um, and it is a great privilege, but I feel like sometimes I do it better as a mum because I'm just more normally with people and we have very different conversations. Um, and so, although God has called me to this, I'm also really passionate about um, people who do normal jobs, um, people who are in retirement communities, people who are um, parents at the school gate, people who are, have got neighbours on their street. One of the weird things about where we live is we don't really seem to have any neighbours, so I feel like a bit of a hypocrite saying that. Um, but I think God uses everyone in an extraordinary way that, where they are, and I feel like my job is to serve you as you do that in ways that I am not able to do that. Absolutely. Brilliant. It's really good having Joe. Um, I've only had in my life uh, curates with me, by the, by the sounds of things, whenever we're going through really tough times. Uh, when I was back at my last church, I had um, um, a curate who I looked after in a team, and we were going through quite a big transition. Then I had another curate when I was going through uh, the mill with, with illness. And now we've got Joe when I've come here. And I was thinking, Lord, why have you called me here? Um, you might be thinking that about why have you called Dan here? But then Joe comes along as, as well as another sign. So I see that, Joe, your time here, uh, however long it is, is, is definitely part of uh, God's plan. We're just so grateful to have you. Um, now, Joe, you did say to me um, beforehand, um, you know, can we have some harder questions? So um, before I ask you some, some nice questions about Jesus, and there's some tricky ones, I thought I'd start with an introduction. And um, the other week, um, Simon White came here, and um, he shared with me before, quite openly, how um, someone on the PCC punched him in the stomach. Okay, and um, I know myself, a, uh, when I was in my, my previous church, um, someone threatened to, to punch me in the face. Um, and also, I do know <laughs> that um, in, uh, in, 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 uh, in, in, well, in, in, in clergy circles at the moment, I've heard at least once um, another clergy person wanted to punch another clergy person in the face. And so the question I have for you, Joe, is this a fresh expression of church that I've missed, punching clergy in the face? And if it is, which part of the body should we punch the vicar in? I mean, I honestly had no idea where we were going. So, um, I mean, I, do you know where I might, I might suggest that perhaps the church invests a little more in anger management therapy? Um, I don't know. Um, do you know, there is a lot of pain out there. There are a lot of people there, out there, who are really hurt. And I've, I've seen plenty in churches of people behaving in ways that you wouldn't hope or long that people would behave in any context. There's something about church that makes people really passionate. Um, and I think that's partly why, you, why more often than you should, you get disputes in church. Do you know, because it's something that really matters. It really, really matters to us. And so when someone disagrees with us on something, whether it's big or small, that gets right to our hearts. And so I see stuff in churches that I can't believe sometimes happens in churches. Um, in my journey in church, I've seen a lot of pain and a lot of grief and a lot of disappointment. There's a longing in us, and I, or at least in me, that church would be the best, most wonderful, safest place where everyone behaves to one another with the kind of love that we hear Jesus has for us. But my experience of church is often it's the place where we bring our baggage and our rubbish. Where actually we sort of let our guard down and we behave in a way that we might not in another context. Because we f maybe we feel at home, or maybe we feel that it should be safe, or maybe we feel that we should be understood. And I, I don't know what those contexts are, but the context that I've been in... Um, Sometimes we're not very good at giving each other space to build understanding. I mean, you look at the church, it's, it's supposed to be the body of Christ, right? But it's full of division. And I think sometimes 
Sometimes that's because we just get a bit caught up on the wrong stuff. But I think it's also a sign of our deep passion. So this stuff matters. It matters who we say Jesus is. And it matters if you don't agree with me, because in some way you might be insulting the person that I love most in the whole world, which is Jesus. It matters when you interfere with my worship, because that is my space to connect with God. So if you do something that's intrusive in that, that I don't like, that annoys me in a way that is quite deep and profound. And so you see that in churches. What do we need to do about that? We need to get a bit better at forgiving one another. And that's not easy when it's about something we really care. Like, it's dead easy to forgive someone about something that doesn't matter. But it's really hard when it matters. And it's really hard when it feels like a place that should be safer and better than anywhere else. But actually, it's full of broken people who are annoying me in many ways and who don't always take responsibility for that or maybe just don't understand. And so we need to be better at loving one another, talking to one another. We need to be better at hearing one another and we need to be better at forgiving one another. And which bit of the body should we punch first? Dan? <laughs> I'm not sure how to answer that. That was a brilliant, brilliant answer. Um, and um, I think what I'm really getting at is um, I guess, yeah, exactly what you said, really. R.T. Kendall, um, you can follow him still online. He's in his, I think, late 80s. And um, all of his life, he's always spoke about the fact that you know, in the Bible, you hear a lot about persecution outside, but actually we somehow persecute within. And, and as, as you said, uh, Joe, that sense of no filter, a sense of just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a sacred space. And I guess just ending this kind of question, really, before we get on to more safer ground for the time being, um, could you just share a little bit about, I hear a lot, and um, I can't see how, but I guess it happens a lot. Um, a lot of clergy, um, bear in mind we're talking about which way of the church, they are either get depressed um, because of what happens in church, or they leave the church. I hear about lots of curates leave after a few years. So what's all that about? Can you just share a little bit about why there's that feeling of sadness in the leadership of the church? Just a small question again. Um, it's good because I feel like I knew what all the other questions were going to be, so this is actually making me think. Um, why is there sadness? Do you know, as clergy we hear and see a lot of what's hard in the world. So we are sometimes aware of the brokenness of the world in a really profound way. And depending on what we do with that, it can just be exhausting. Um, my mum works in mental health and she's um, regularly surprised that I don't have places as a clergy person where I can unburden. So they, they as part of their work time, have to have supervision where they process the things that they have encountered. And I think sometimes for clergy, we end up going, I can carry that, I can carry that, I can carry that. And we can't. You know, Jesus knows we can't. He knows it's too much for us. And sometimes, I mean, there are different things for different people, and it's kind of a, a bit about personality types, isn't it? So there are amazing people who end up in ministry because they are profoundly caring. You get a lot of vicars in churches who really care. I hope you've noticed that occasionally. One or two smiles. Okay, good. You've had maybe half a vicar who cared. Um, but you do get clergy who absolutely love the people that they're with. And one of the challenges often is that they hear so much of the pain and they're so busy trying to fix it that they just get overwhelmed. And they, they just sort of struggle under the burden. You also get clergy who've got great vision, or church leaders or, you know, church wardens, readers... Um, leaders of ministry have great vision for it and they keep on going and keep on going and keep on going and it's not making any difference or they don't feel it's making a big difference and they get worn out and if if you're in either of those camps tonight I want to say to you God sees what you're doing if you feel that you're worn out under the burden of other people's you know what's bearing on them God sees what you're carrying and he wants to take it off you and he wants to refresh you in that if you've been fighting for something, if you've been trying to lead something and it's been struggling for a long time, God sees your faithfulness and your heart. 
And he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You've done what I've asked you to do. How much fruit it bears is up to him, not up to you. And I think sometimes we think it's all about us when actually it's all about Jesus. We think it all depends on us when actually God says it's his church. He's going to look after it. And, and we can feel responsible as if somehow we've got to hold up the bit that Jesus should do. And I think that often is what leads to weariness. And, and also we live in a culture that's a post-Christian culture. So for many of you, the world that you grew up in, church was normal. The Christian stuff we did was normal. But we now live in a culture that is post-Christian. If we had worked as hard as we do today, 50 years ago, the fruit that we would have seen would have been very, very different. And it probably was. Maybe a slight nod, half a nod. I may or may not be. But, but the stuff that we do now is much harder work to get the same amount of result. Like if we'd put on a really good coffee morning in the church, even 20, 30 years ago, we'd have had more people come to it just because there were more people in church and they might have brought their friends more easily. Now it is harder. And we sometimes keep ourselves under the same level of expectation that we used to have because it used to work like that. So why doesn't it work like that now? And the reason is culture has shifted, but not everything that we do has shifted. But it doesn't mean that God has given up on us and it doesn't mean that he doesn't still have a plan for us. It doesn't mean he doesn't see us. It just means culture has shifted. And it might mean that other things work that wouldn't have worked then but might work now. And that's okay. That's not a sign of our failure. That's just a sign of the world being a bit different. So we've got to work out how we engage in that. But we don't need to feel bad because of it. And I think a lot of clergy feel bad. Um, and a lot of church wardens feel bad. And a lot of leaders of children's ministry feel bad. Because the world doesn't work in the same way, but the expectation is the same, if not higher. And that is a really rubbish place to stand. And if that's how you're feeling tonight, I'd want to say, don't worry about it. The world is different. Let's work out how we go from here. Let's not hold ourselves up to measures of the past, because we are not living in the past. We're living today, and we're going to live in the future. And what is God calling us to in this season and in the next season? And actually, let's just let those pressures go. Because they're just pressure. They're not actually the reality we're living in. Brilliant. Oh, oh I feel like applauding already. But uh, we'll wait until the end. Okay, brilliant. Um, so we just go on to safer ground for a moment. That was just a fantastic answer. Um, and we've asked everyone, um, who is Jesus to you? Do you want to share a little bit about that? I would, Dan, but am I allowed to use my Bible? Oh, if you must, gosh, you know. Jesus, the Bible, we're going to pray next. Okay. Um, so when I was growing up, um, in this amazing, slightly quirky and very Kiwi Baptist church in the south of New Zealand, um, we used to learn memory verses. And for a little while, we had to learn the whole of Psalm 23. And I expect you all know it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for he is with me. My rod and my staff, they comfort me. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemy, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Who is Jesus to me? Well, growing up in a country with 5 million people and 25 million sheep, the Lord is my good shepherd. I mean, come on, we were seriously outnumbered. Um, he's my shepherd. He's the one who lays down his life for the sheep. He's the good shepherd. He's the one who goes off to find me when I wander off and brings me back. And I do try to wander off fairly regularly in different ways. Um, he's the one who calls me. And loves me. He knows me by name and I know his voice and I follow it. Um, earlier this evening I was with the kids, um, chicken pox haven. So we had a like eighty bath to kind of deal with the itchiness. Um, and Jemima was not up for this. So we had it with glow sticks because that makes everything more fun. Um, and then we decided that we needed to be a little bit more Vicar Dan. So we, we had a little disco. Um, <laughs> Very good. <laughs> 
But the Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who calls me. He's the one whose voice I try to follow, the one whose moves I try to echo. Um, and, I mean, you'll have heard it a million times. But I love the bit in John, right at the end of John's Gospel, where Jesus reinstates Peter. And he says to me, uh, he says to Peter, um, take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. And then um, feed my lambs. He encourages Peter to do just what he has done. So who is the Lord? Who is Jesus? He's my good shepherd. But he's not just my, like, he's not just a good shepherd and I'm always the sheep. But he's the good shepherd and he asks me to come and be a shepherd with him. Which I think is one of the most extraordinary and radical things. That he's not just God on high, but he invites me into all of the promises that are his as Jesus, the son of God. And he invites me to join in his ministry. He invites me to look after his sheep with him. He invites me to take part in it. I love that because he's not just asking me to like come and just be a sheep, but he's coming and asking me to get involved. And he's helping me to learn, like I'm definitely the junior shepherd, like quite far down the pecking order, like junior shepherd eight billion and two or something. But he's the shepherd who calls me and offers me all of that good stuff that Psalm 23 promises. And then he says to me, now go and bring other people into this because this is wonderful and this is for you. That when Russia is bombing Ukraine, you don't have to fear because you're with me and my rod and my staff comfort you. That when life is tough and we're looking at people who are going, there's no food on the table, we know someone who invites them to a feast. We know someone who offers everything that is needed. And who's Jesus to me? I mean, that, that's just like a little bit of it, but I hope that's a helpful image that he is my good shepherd. Um, Jesus being here, um, how would Jesus be the vicar here at Holy Cross? I know you may not want to be the vicar, like you may not want to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, but if he had to be, what would he do? Um, do you know when you, like, when you've heard this question asked seven or eight times, I bet you're all sitting there thinking, I know what I would say. And I've been sitting there for the last few weeks going, what am I going to say when Dan asks me that? Um, do you know what? I think he would be really excited that there are a group of people who come with consistency and faithfulness, wanting to know more about who he is and what, what Jesus would hope for this church. Um, I was thinking earlier, Dan's going, oh, there's only 18 of us. Well, you know, there are only 12 disciples, so um, they changed the whole world with the work that they did. So let's not write ourselves off just yet. And they were all sorts of people, you know, tax collectors, fishermen, this, that, and the other, people who got into trouble. I mean, one of them didn't even, you know, last that long. He didn't make it past Jesus' resurrection. You know, he wasn't there even for that. So only really 11. Um, what would Jesus say when he was... If he was vicar here, what would he do? I mean, I think he would do all the things that we wouldn't expect him to do. He might knock a massive hole in the side of the building and just, like, leave it open. Um, he might never even come into the building. What, what would Jesus do if he was vicar of the Holy Cross? He would be really excited about you each and every one of you, because each and every one of you is made in his image, and he loves you, and he knows you, and he would want to grow you as his disciples. I expect he would tell a whole bunch of weird stories, and we would sit there being slightly puzzled and spending years trying to work out what on earth did he mean when he said that. Um, I expect he would invite people in and he would throw parties that we wouldn't expect. I expect he would probably actually just walk up to some of us and say, I'm gonna come and stay with you. And we're going to have everyone else around for dinner. <laughs> and he would go, okay. <laughs> and I expect that he would say to you, come follow me. We're going to go and be fishers of men um, on foot for a while. And then he'd say to you, you know, if someone asks you for your cloak, you're going to give it to them. And then you're going to go back home and get the other ones that you've got. And you're going to give those away as well. I expect he might say to some of you, you can squeeze some Ukrainian refugees in, can't you? I expect he might say things like, 
Just trying to decide how naughty I'm going to be or not. Um, it's the house of God and it's covered in dog pee. What are we going to do about that? He might also say things like, let the children come to me. And that's going to be sticky because it always is. And that's going to challenge us. I don't know what he would do, but it would be different for each of us. And he would speak truth into our lives. And some of us, we would find that really uncomfortable. And some of us, we would find that really encouraging. And we'd all have to wrestle with that. Um, I'm not sure that I could cope with Jesus being vicar of Holy Cross because I know it would unsettle me. And, and it would force me to be different in a way that would be both the most wonderful thing in my life and the most challenging thing, but ultimately the most wonderful thing. Um, and I know that in me as a Christian, there's a bit of a, a challenge in asking that question, what would, you do if Jesus, what would we do if Jesus was vicar of Holy Cross? Because actually there's a little bit of me that goes, I actually quite like you being dead, resurrected and not quite here. Because it slightly lets me get on with doing my life the way I want to. But if he was actually here, I wouldn't be able to do that. And so... Um, I would love Jesus to be vicar of Holy Cross, but I know that that would change me radically. And, I'm, and I say that really honestly, gosh, that would be a big change. <laughs> Wonderful, exciting, but it wouldn't let me stay comfortable. So as I seek to follow Jesus, I have to keep asking myself, and I, w- I want to do this, Lord, where am I too comfortable? Where am I... Where are parts of my life that don't follow you? How do I lay that down and become more like you? Become more like the good shepherd who gives up his life for a sheep? What do I need to give up to be more like you? And it's really hard. Um, I think Jesus being vicar of Holy Cross would be wonderful. The best, literally the best thing ever. But I'm not sure I'm ready for it. We can see Jesus in you already, so uh, it's good, good to see that. Um, we're going to um, move slightly uh, from about Jesus, but obviously we'll, we can't move away from Jesus, but uh, more about his church, his bride. And uh, before we go on to safer grounds, I thought I'd ask another quite tricky question. Um, in your opinion, um, what makes a viable church? And the second part to the question is... Um, which churches do you think should be closed? In other words, which churches have been going on for too long? Not the churches in, you know, the body of Christ, because that's always going to be living, but it's the actual building itself. So um, what, in your eyes, is a viable church, and which churches would you close if you were the Archbishop of Canterbury? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll ask him next time I see him, Dan. Um... It's a really mean question, and um, I love that you keep promising we're coming to safer ground, because um, that's, I hope, is the questions you're not going to ask. Um, what makes a viable church? Honestly, Jesus. It's like the classic Sunday school answer, isn't it? But what makes a church viable? Only Jesus, because otherwise we're just a bunch of people gathered in a room. So I guess then you kind of break that down. You go, well, what does that mean if you say Jesus is what makes a viable church? Well, it's got to have some people in it who love Jesus. If there's no one in a church who loves Jesus, probably not a church. Might be using a church building, but probably not a church. Um, I don't know if (laughs) some ecclesiastical lawyers will come and tell me off for that. Um, So you've got to love Jesus. You've got to have people in the church who follow him who believe in him who pray to him what makes what do we mean by what do we mean by viable honestly i don't think money is what makes us viable although sometimes that's what it boils down to in practicality what makes us viable well we are a group of people gathered around jesus that makes us a church and the word church comes from the is the Greek word ecclesia, which means a gathering. 
So what, what is a gathering? Well, it's some people, and what are they gathered around? They've got to be gathered around Jesus. Financially, lots of churches are under pressure. Lots of churches are under pressure logistically, but it's a group of people gathered around Jesus. What does that look like in practice in terms of what the church is recognised as well, a group of people gathered around the word and the sacraments would be kind of what the Anglican church would say. Um, so people who uh, baptise and people who take communion. What makes it viable? I guess that you've got an intention to carry on. Do you want to carry on? Do you want to carry on at all costs? Do you want to carry on even though it's going to cost you something? No church has ever survived that wasn't prepared to pay some cost. And I don't mean financially. I actually mostly mean in terms of inviting people in. And the cost of of giving your church away to people who you don't yet know and don't yet belong here. If you're not prepared to welcome people in, then you're probably not a viable church. Um, Because when you die, there won't be anybody here. Or when you move or whatever happens, there won't be anybody left. The only way that you can practically... Not and I leave the financial stuff to someone else. Um, the only way that you can be a viable church is if you're an inviting church, if you're a welcoming church, and that means um, not just having a welcomer on the door, although that is really important, but actually welcoming people into your lives, welcoming people into your family, into the family that is Holy Cross, and that's why that's the bit that's actually often more costly than the money because you have to let people disrupt your safe patterns of life. You have to let people get to know you. I mean, Jesus, when he discipled people, it wasn't like half an hour on a Sunday morning. It was life, day after day after day, doing everything with them, letting them see who he was, letting them see his integrity and his character, letting letting them see that he really was the Son of God. If we're not prepared to let people into our lives so that they can see that our lives focus around Jesus, then they're never going to really know that. They're just going to think we're people who turn up at a building on a Sunday morning and sing some songs and run some rotors. And if we're a group of people who are gathered around Jesus, there's hopefully a bit more going on than that. Um, So viable for me is not about numbers. It's not about money. It's not about the buildings. It's about whether you're gathered around Jesus and whether you're going to invite other people in. Because ultimately a disciple of Jesus exists to make other disciples. And now you, that might be, um, that might feel really uncomfortable. That might feel um, disruptive, sorry. Um, but the point of a disciple is always that you pass it on. It's never just about holding on to it. It's never about, I've got the treasure in heaven and it's for me. No, it's, I've, got, I've seen that the treasure is available for everyone, so I want to invite everyone to come and have a part of it. I don't get less of it because I invite other people in. In fact, I get to see more of how wonderful it is because I get to see how it makes a difference in other people's lives, in the lives of people who don't know that there is treasure and don't know that there is hope and don't know that God is wonderful and that he loves them. So that's what viable is for me, um, but it's probably not what it will be when they look at the diocese and go, how do we divvy up the limited resources we have? But I tell you what, if you look like people who love Jesus and who gathered around him, people will see that and will recognise that. And even if there's five of you, that is more exciting to put money to support that than a thousand people who don't seem to be that interested in reaching the people around them and who don't seem to be that interested in Jesus. I I know where I would put my money if I was the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, but I'll have a chat with him next time I catch up with him and let, you know, just share that with him. We we can talk later about which churches you'd close, but we'll we'll let you off that one at the moment. At least it's not this one, thanks goodness for that. Right. I mean, it's so important, isn't it? I mean, just today, I was, um, I, I was on Twitter. Um, it was the PA to the bishop. I'm sure she doesn't mind me saying. She said, Dan, your church has so many great ideas, so many brilliant things are happening. It must be great being part of that church. And so I think, even though I think, oh, we'll just do what we normally do, but obviously we, we do more than that. Um, coming now to the business end, you know, uh, we, we always say we'll have to finish by nine. So um, 
Um, but one of the questions which we really are here for is, where do you think, which way do you think we should go as a church here at Holy Cross? Um, could we possibly have a church like it used to be? I'll speak to Alder Goffman today on the phone. And uh, could we have a church like that? Um, is, there, is there a way of bringing that back? Or do we have to do things differently, as Bishop Christine used to say? Um, just, I'm going to just come back to the last thing. I don't know which churches we should shut, because I don't know them. Like, I just don't, I don't know enough churches to have any say, or to have any opinion. So I'm, I'm not ducking the question because I, it's awkward, although it is. But I just, I wouldn't... That's way above my pay grade. <laughs> like, I look after interns. Um, uh, what was the question? <laughs> where do you think we're going? Oh, where are we going? Oh, yes. Um, I think we're going forwards. Aren't we? Because the past is the past. And there's lots of great stuff. I'm so aware of looking straight at an archaeologist. There's so much great stuff that we can learn from the past. We can learn lots about how God has moved in the past. We can learn lots about how churches have grown and been planted. We can learn lots about um, things that you can do in church that are helpful. But we are not the church that we were. And going back doesn't make any sense because we haven't got the right people to go back because they're not here anymore. So, and I don't think any of you want to go back as much as you may have loved what it was. I don't, I don't think I'm here to say, let's go back. <laughs> um, what does the future look like? Do you know what? I've no idea. I've no idea what the future of the church looks like. I know the church is the bride of Christ. And at the moment, she stands spotty and blemished, but Jesus intends to restore her perfectly. So we need to have a church where people can come when they feel spotty and blemished and a bit rubbish, and that they don't have to be the perfect spotless bride because they don't have to be that before they meet Jesus. He does the business of transforming them. I know that we need to have a church where we actually tell people that they are welcome. Um, and that is a funny thing for us as the Anglican Church because we've been so used to being a place where we were at the centre of stuff and where people naturally came quite regularly, where they naturally came at least for birth, marriage and death, if not also for Easter and Christmas and maybe for one in between just for luck. But we're not that place anymore, so we need to say to people, you're welcome, because you know what people out there think? They think, if I walk through those doors, God would strike me with lightning. They think, I'm not welcome. Those, those people in there will see that I'm not like them, and they'll judge me as I walk through the door. So we need to say to them, you are welcome. There is a place for you at Holy Cross. There is a place for you in the Church of Jesus. And then we actually need to make space for them. Um, I was really, really privileged, and I think that's part of the reason that I've stayed in the church, that people trusted me with stuff when I was young, and they let me try things and do things. Um, sometimes things that ended really badly. Um, uh, I, I once invited some friends of mine who were in a professional band to come and like, do a gig at the church that I was working at, and it had not occurred to me um, to think about publicity, to think about lighting, or to think about sound, because I was 18 and like nobody checked that I had thought about those things, and they just didn't occur to me because I told some people and I sort of thought that that would do it, didn't. Um, so we have to let people in and let them make mistakes, and we have to let people in and make space for them, because people made space for me, and that's part of why I stayed, because I knew that I was part of the family. And in families, we make space for people, right? Even if they're a bit inconvenient. Let's be fair, when most people join families, um, they're either born in or they marry in. When they're born in, they're noisy, they poo a lot, and they make a lot of mess, okay? For the first few years, they just cause chaos, and then they sort of you know, become useful contributors. 
when they marry in, my goodness, they come with all sorts of different ideas. They come with their own culture. They come with their own way of doing things. They disrupt all the relationships and it takes us a while to get used to them. Why would we think people joining a church family would be any less messy than that? Why would we think that people would come and just assimilate to exactly the way that we do it? If we want people to come in, they'll disrupt us, but they'll make us better, they'll make us stronger. They'll make us more loving, because we'll have learnt to love them as they come in with all their difference, different opinions, different ideas, different ways of doing things, some of which will be better and some of which will be like me putting on a rock concert, absolutely terrible. But we will be better people for having learnt how to journey with them through that. So what is the future of the church like? I mean, it's different, isn't it? Because it's going to involve people who are different to us. But it's also going to involve people who see something here that they're really excited about. And for some of them, that will be about how the worship is. Actually, that sense of coming into something that has awe and majesty in it will be really exciting and appealing. That will draw them into awe and worship. For others, it will be about a community where they feel welcome. For others, it will be about amazing organ music. For others, it will be, do you know what? It's just really nice that someone makes me a cup of tea or coffee. Um, or for those who come to the toddler group, someone talks to me and maybe holds my baby and I can drink a whole cup of hot coffee in one go. Like, as a new mum, that was probably one of the highlights of my week. Don't underestimate how big those treasures are that you are able to share with people. Um, what's the future of the church? It depends what you make it, to be honest. Who do you want to reach? Where do you want to start? Who are the people that God has put on your heart? I, I can come in and I can have a million bright ideas and Dan has about 7,000 before breakfast every day. Um, I know that because every time I talk to him, I'm like, I feel like I've been run over by a train. Um, but who do you want to invite? Because you're the people of this church. You're the people who know it, you love it, you know its bones. Who do you want to bring in? And how are you going to do that? Because you know how to do that better than I do. You know what they've come to. You know what your neighbours would come to. They might only ever come to your house. So what can you do at your house that they might come to? They might only ever come outside the church because they don't feel very comfortable inside a church. Maybe they've had an awful experience. What can you do on the doorstep? What is God calling you to do? Where are you being called to restore people, to offer them hope, to offer them a feast, and to show them that they're loved? You know that. I... I can paint you a lovely picture of what a Holy Cross could be like, trust me. But it would be my picture, and it has to be your picture. So that's the future of the church, is your vision for it. In prayer, with Jesus, with Dan's guidance and enthusiasm. It's your picture, and you know what it is. By, like, here we are at, eight, at week eight, right? You've all been sat there going, I think it's probably this, by now. I hope at least two of you have had an idea by now. If you haven't, we'll get some more coffee out. We'll stay a bit later. Um, but that would, that would be my encouragement. Please don't expect that we will come with a plan. Because if we do, it's going to be naive. It's going to be simple. It's going to be about what we've seen work in other places. But it's not going to be about Fenham. And it's not going to be about Holy Cross. And it's got to be from you. That's not a cop-out. Because we're prepared to do the work to help you make it happen. But it's got to come from you, because God has called you here. And he's called some of you here for decades. And so you know it in a way we never, ever, ever will. Please don't see that as a disadvantage. You have got an amazing treasure there. There's a, 
two things I just want to add to it. Uh, just actually, Joe, when you're talking about that, I come up with a really great idea, okay? Right, get this, okay? This is on, on tape for seven billion people to listen to. Okay, um, I had this idea of just about welcoming. What I want to do one day, okay, especially when it's warmer, is, you know, the, um, the pathway to uh, just the road, I would like us to have um, 10 people on each side just welcoming people in. And when they go past, we can say, welcome. We could have flags and everything. Anyway, that was just... <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going to make that happen. Bring some interns. Can, can I just say, like, look at their faces. <laughs> they say, like, yes. Another yeah. thousand aliens. Do no, no. they want to do that? No, no, no. They do want to do that. No, um, and the, the other thing, I'm not saying as, as an arrogance whatsoever, yeah, but I just thought as a, a sign of God's uh, uh, humour. You know, like sometimes years ago, you may have pray, prayed a prayer saying, God, I re- really want to have, you know, some, some brilliant vicars and ministers come to the church where you've got me and Joe. So there you go. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, most of you laughed at that one. Um, um, we're going to open up for um, questions. Ron is going to run around. I've got a few other tricky questions. Sorry, I didn't mean to uh, use your, uh, your surname there, but, um, <laughs> um, but um, has anyone got a question for Reverend Joe Tricky? Yes. Yes. It's good. Unlike so, other weeks, it's like real enthusiasm for questions. When you first started talking about Um, so, uh, because my DBS only come through this week, um, I've not been wearing my collar at all. You'll have noticed that. I've put it on specially for you this evening. Um, I told our nursery that I'm a priest and that if they would like a chaplain, um, that I'd be delighted to serve them. Um, that's been hilarious. I hope none of them are listening. Because um, uh, they looked at me a bit and were like, you can talk to Alex. She's in charge of... Um, um, people being okay. I said, great, fine, lovely. Um, so Alex is in charge of well-being at the nursery. Um, and within a couple of weeks, do you want to know the inquiries that I've had? They wanted me to do something at Christmas to teach them about, um, to teach kids about faith. Um, but we couldn't do that because COVID. Um, I prayed with one lady whose gran was dying and she wanted to know where there would be a church in Newcastle she could light a candle. I prayed... Um, I've been invited to do a baptism, but I can't do it because I'm doing it on the same day as um, I'm doing christening here. So I've been invited to do that. Um, and I'm going in to do an Easter talk. All I said to them was, um, I'm a priest. So if you would like me to come in and do anything, I'm here for you. If there's any way that I can serve you, I'd love to come in. I don't think that I need to be a priest to say that. I could have said to them, Look, my name's Joe. Um, I work, you know, I'm a I'm a Christian, and um, if there's anything that I can do to support you in this really rubbish time, I'd love to do that. And I think they'd have still they might not have said, "Will you do a christening?" Because that would have been a bit weird. Um, but they might have said to me, "Do you know anyone who can help us out?" So I think, as weird as it sometimes is, and it did feel a bit clunky, like, "Hi, I'm Joe," and um, you know can I serve you? That kind of language goes down really well. So I, I really didn't expect in my first week of offering that to end up praying for some of the staff. Um, but I just took the opportunity and I would encourage you to, do you know most people if you offer to pray for them will say yes? Because they are desperately hoping for some change in some situation. Or they're desperately hoping that God will be for them. And if you don't know what to pray, you just pray, God, would you bless this person in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? You just pray, pray a blessing over them. And people will be absolutely thrilled that you have prayed something good for them. You don't have to have like a big lengthy prayer. You don't have to do anything complicated. But if you offer prayer, very, very few people will say no. And if they don't feel comfortable with you doing it then, you can say, would you mind if I pray for you when I go home? Um, and you might be doing that anyway. But if you say it, then you start a conversation about it. Um, and you know you guys are in and out of churches all the time so you must meet people you probably do more of this than I do to be honest you probably you should you should be in the archbishop's evangelist team because you probably end up doing more one-to-one evangelism than I ever do any other questions yes Karen
Yeah, no. I, I, know, I think I know what you're saying. I think it's every vicar's um, conundrum. How do you hold, um, you know, 50 people, 70 ideas together in one community? How do you hold people for whom uh, sacramental worship in a very reverent and liturgical style enables them to encounter the presence of God with people who would much rather do it with a rock band? See yourselves as one family and do both well. It's really hard. Um, my personal preference, um, and this is my preference, so it might not be yours, um, but is to have, is I like consistency. So I like to turn up at something and know that I'll get something that feels roughly the same every week without having to remember it's the first Sunday or it's the fifth Sunday because I'm, like, I'm always on the wrong Sunday. Um, and my, most people's lives don't work like that. Um, so, but I like the idea of being together for a bit, like of the family, of the community. So I don't want to separate people out into totally separate parts of the week. Because I've been in churches where the traditional service happens at this time and the contemporary service happens at this time and never the two shall meet and both think that they are completely representative of what the church is like but don't understand the others at all. And I think that's a real sadness to me that there's no overlap. Um, so what, uh, what I don't like is when you meld them but do nothing well. So no one's happy. It's like an interview. It's brilliant. Very long preamble. What are your skills? <laughs> um, no, no. That's fine. I'm, I'm not taking it that way. Um, the thing about vacuums and power is that they all... Someone always steps in. You don't have a power vacuum without somebody filling it, intentionally or unintentionally someone steps in to lead. Sometimes the problem with churches when you have a vacancy is no one's quite sure who's supposed to do it. And it, it can all end up a bit chaotic because lots of people are trying to be helpful um, and lots of people are like being a bit confused and it depends on how it's been set up before you go into interregnum. And I think that would be a really important thing for Dan and I to think about. Um, and, and mostly for Dan to think about how do we leave you ready to do another interregnum well? Um, I guess uh, what gifts and skills do I have? I, I like asking those questions. How do we leave you well? How do we set you up that whatever God brings, you are able to flourish in the in-between season, but you're also able to let them come in let another vicar come in and help you to continue with that journey. Now, you can, in churches, you can end up with one of two problems. One problem is that you're so great at leading yourselves through an interregnum, and I've seen this, that when a vicar comes, you're a bit like, what's the point of you? We're doing fine, thanks. Don't like your ideas. They're not our ideas. Or you can end up with such a vacuum of that you're desperate for someone new to come in, but actually it's like no one's led it through the gap. And because I come from Surrey and there are lots of people who are leaders, um, my experience has often been uh, that certain people rise up in that season, but then there's a bit of a kind of clash of heads when a new vicar comes in, because actually they were doing a really good job of running the church, and they really were doing a great job of running things, but then it's very hard to welcome somebody else new in. Um, so I, I would want to ask you questions like, you know, who do you want between you to help you through the next interregnum? 
how are you going to do that well so that you're thinking about flourishing and part of the I guess the advantage of having an interim even though we have banned that word is that there's someone to help you think really proactively about your future and how you want to be ready when you get a new full-time incumbent how, you know how, what does that look like it's about getting the ground ready for the next season that that may feel like a holding pattern to you, but it's actually a really important thing. So I, um, I worked for a couple of churches where they've been a vicar for 25 plus years. And actually, the vicar that immediately followed that person was really hard. It was because they're living in the legacy of someone else's 25 year plus ministry. Um, of those in those two churches, I hope this isn't too widely broadcast. Um, one of them only managed about two years because it was so complicated. Um, one of them is still going, but it's not been easy. How, and actually, they kind of needed an interim person to come in and say, "Right, you've had this person that you've known and loved, and you know, not only have they baptised your baby, but they've married them, and they're practically like seeing the grandchildren arrive." How, how can you make space in your hearts and lives for somebody new? And actually, what Dan can help you to do is to be ready for the next person. And that, that's the positive side of some of what he's talking about with interims. He's here to get the ground ready for you to fly when the next person arrives. Yeah, thank you, Joe, for that. Um, just just um, a, a strange thought. It, it may not be God, but I just felt God say to me... Um, I've given you enough strength to be here until I'm 70. So uh, there you go. But we'll see what happens on that front, okay? You know, okay, God. Um, but uh, there we go. So, so basically what I'm trying to say is I'm, uh, I'm treating this here as if it is my last post. So, so don't think I'm here just thinking, you know, when am I moving on? You know, this here is, I'm in it for the, the real deal. Um, Due to the fact I want to watch uh, The Apprentice Final Four on iPlayer, um, I'm going to have one final question from me. I'll make it uh, brief and we'll have a short night prayer. But the question we always ask is this. Um, how do you spend time with Jesus shortly? Oh, sorry. I'm obviously talking for too long. Um, do you know, it's been really different in different seasons of my life. Um, I used to get up and pray every morning before... Um, I'd go off to work. If I want to get up before my children this morning, um, I've probably got to set an alarm for about three um, to be certain I would get some quiet time. So it, it does depend day to day. On days that I have the kids, um, I find it really hard to get any time from the start of the day until the end. So uh, the evening is my kind of precious time with the Lord. Um, on days that I'm working, I can take a lunch break and spend a bit of time reading the Bible, worshipping, praying. Um, and actually in, the, in my day-to-day -day work, that kind of naturally comes up quite a lot. Um, as I hope you would expect, I do occasionally open a Bible and I do occasionally pray at work. Um, how do I spend time with the Lord? Do you know what? Often for me, it's those precious snatched moments. And when I used to um, travel a lot to work, um, so like go half an hour, 45 minutes to get into work, that was a really precious time for me on the way to work. Um, when I used to do a lot of travelling with work I would use those journey times as like my sacred spaces so um, you hear people talk about you know have a retreat this often or I do this this often travel time for me is often where I spend time with God even if that's dropping the kids at nursery and coming back that time when I've not got anyone else in my space wanting anything from me is often a really precious time for me with God um, it might not be very long, or some days it's a bit longer because I'm travelling further. Um, when I start going up to places like Berwick a bit more often, it will be significantly longer. So I'll do something like I'll pick a passage of scripture, um, or I'll use, uh, use an app that reads scripture to me. So if I'm in the car, obviously like not so good to be reading the Bible at the same time. Better to listen to it. Um, if I'm walking along, I might just flick something up on my phone and read it as I go. So it depends. For me, at the moment in this season of life, it is very ad hoc. But I try and find a bit of space to be me and the Lord in honesty every morning. Um, and that's sometimes two minutes in the shower. 
because that is where the door is shut and I'm in peace and quiet. Um, sometimes that is longer. I, I would say, well, you know, if I was wanting to encourage you, I think one of the things that most often puts us off coming into the presence of God is we feel a bit guilty that we didn't do it yesterday. Or maybe we're not doing enough or as much. But you know when you call someone that you love and they're just thrilled to hear from you? It's like me calling my grandmas. Oh, you're on the phone. How are you? Like, it's wonderful to hear from you. Oh, Joe, darling. I'm just off to have my hair done. Always having the hairs done. Um, God is more excited than that to hear from you, even if it's just two minutes on the way somewhere. Don't be discouraged because you didn't do what you felt like you should probably do as a Christian, which is some, like, impossible marathon of reading the Bible and praying. God is just delighted to hear from you. And I think, as a mum, that's been a really important part of my life over the last, last four years. Um, one more second, which is just to say that um, when I was a new mum, my sister gave me a book of Bible studies for new mums. So it's a year for, of Bible studies for new mums. There were 52. So the expectation is you might manage one a week. And I just thought that was brilliant because that was a really realistic expectation. So you might be in a season of your life where you feel like one Bible study a week is, like, is a massive achievement. Um, and you might be in a season of your life where you've got two hours a day to spend with the Lord. Wherever you are, he is just delighted to hear from you. Joe, it's been absolutely brilliant having you. Um, so much insight. And please have a listen back over the podcast. So many great things there about Jesus, about the sense of the church, what it used to be and what it is now and about where we're going. So um, can we just give Joe a massive round of applause? That was fantastic. Let's end now with the grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. May wherever you go today be blessed and take this great encouragement from Joe with you.